Welcome to another episode of Keys for SLPs. Today, I am pleased to have Kim Levin as our guest for this episode, Keys to Executive Function, Navigating High School and College in a Virtual World. Before we get started, here are the disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13 and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Kimberly Levin receives compensation for this episode from SpeechTherapyPD.com. She receives a salary from Metropolitan Counseling Associates and is a member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association. As a reminder, For this live episode, to get live CEUs, you must log into your SpeechTherapyPD.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. Our guest, Kimberly Shore Levin, MS, CCC, SLP, graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and worked for over 20 years in various hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area, including the National Rehabilitation Hospital, George Washington University Hospital, and the Clinical Center at the National Institutes of Health. Kim always enjoyed working with the adult neurogenic population and spent most of her career working with medically compromised patients. She gained experience with executive function in the context of traumatic brain injury and concussions. As an SLP who is always up for a challenge, she decided to try something different and hone her clinical skills with a new population, adolescents and young adults with underlying mental health issues. Kim has found her new passion working with this population and is here today to share this passion with us. Welcome, Kim. Tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you found a niche working with adults and with adolescents and young adults with executive dysfunction. It was just by happenstance that I made this transition. I had spent 20 years working in hospitals and doing inpatient and outpatient in the hospital setting. And it was great to do that, but I was kind of itching to do something different. And I was at a holiday party in my neighborhood and ran into a friend of mine who had a thriving mental health practice in suburban Maryland, where I live, outside of Washington, D.C. And we got to talking and she was like, remind me what you do again. And I said, I'm a speech language pathologist. And she said, oh, you work with executive function, right? And I said, yeah, I do. And kind of explained that I used to work with traumatic brain injury and other neurologically impaired adults. And she said, we're looking for somebody that does executive function support and you can do that, right? I'm like, yeah. And she explained a little bit more about the position. And I was like, I could totally do what you're looking for. It was in the context of mental health with young adults. But she said, I'd love you to talk to my business partner. And to make a very long story short, (laughs) I talked to her business partner and her business partner had actually worked with an SLP before with one of her clients who had suffered a traumatic brain injury. So luckily she was familiar with the work that we did and it just kind of was meant to be. And I was really honest and said, look, I don't have any experience working with mental health. And any of the things that go along with mental health disorders, anxiety, mood dysregulation, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, but I really want to learn. 
and mm-hmm. I'm just really eager to work with a new population. And so I think my eagerness and willingness to learn was something that the team was sort of just impressed with my openness and willingness to learn that even though I've been doing something for this long, I still really am open to learning and reading and taking classes and and everything. So that's how it started. Well, that is great. I think curiosity is a hallmark of a good SLP. And clearly you are with the resume that you have and the experience that you have. But I think that is one of the wonderful things about our profession is that we are able to work in so many different areas. And those skills overlap, as you have found with being able to transition seamlessly, right? Right. I mean, I would definitely say I had some peaks and valleys, as I think anybody oh, does when they yes. transition to a, a new position. But it's been an awesome experience for me, for sure. That's great. And so how, about how many years has it been? So I've been here for over three years. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. So just for clarification for our, our audience, I know all SLPs learn this in graduate school, but just in case someone's not working with executive function right now. So for clarification, will you define executive dysfunction? And I just want to interrupt a little bit before you do that. I want to remind everyone who's listening through speechtherapypd.com that you have created an excellent handout for future reference that really does a great job in defining executive dysfunction. So didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. Well, I think the simplest way to describe executive function, it's really the self-management system of the brain. So when one has executive dysfunction, somewhere in this system, there's going to be a systemic problem. I really love Dr. Thomas Brown's work. If anyone is looking for a great resource about executive function, I, I love all of his work. And I know I've created a list of resources, but I like the way that he talks about that when executive functions are impaired... An individual may no longer be capable of satisfactory self-care, of performing remunerative or useful work independently, or of maintaining normal social relationships, regardless of how high the individual scores on tests of skills, knowledge, and abilities. So when I read that, I was like, wow, that is a really great way of thinking of executive dysfunction. So no matter how intelligent someone is or how high they score on something, when their self-care is impaired, when they are having challenges in the work or academic settings, or when their social relationships are impaired, they're having executive dysfunction. I also like the framework of Peg Dawson and Richard Guare, and they write the Smart But Scattered series, and they break down executive function into 12 specific skills. So we've got 12 specific executive functions. And I always like to review this with my clients as well, because I think they are always like, what? We've got 12 executive functions. What are you talking about? So the first one is response inhibition, and it's defined as the capacity to think before we act. And it's the ability to resist the urge to do or say something. And it allows us the time to evaluate a situation and how our behaviors might impact it. Then our working memory. So it's our ability to hold information in memory while executing complex tasks. It incorporates our ability to draw upon our past learning experiences, to apply the situation at hand, or to project into the future. Then emotional control. 
It's our ability to manage our emotions to achieve goals, complete tasks, or control and direct behavior. Then good old task initiation, our ability to begin projects without undue procrastination in an efficient or timely fashion. So here the high school and college student comes in. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And then sustained attention, our capacity to keep attention on a situation or task despite distractibility, fatigue, or boredom. Big keywords there. Planning and prioritizing, the ability to create a roadmap to reach a goal or complete a task. It also involves being able to decide what's important to focus on and what's not important. Organization, the ability to create and maintain systems to keep track of information and materials. Time management, this is a big one. The capacity to estimate how much time one has, how to allocate it, how to stay within time limits and deadlines. Having a sense of time is very important. And I find that our folks with ADHD have a very challenging time estimating how much time it's going to take them to do a task, to complete a task. Cognitive flexibility. The ability to revise plans in the face of obstacles, setbacks, new information, or mistakes. And it relates to our adaptability to changing conditions. Metacognition. The ability to stand back and take a bird's eye view of oneself in a situation. It's our ability to observe how we problem solve, self-monitor, and self-evaluate our skills. And finally, we have two left. Goal-directed persistence. It's our capacity to develop a goal follow through with the completion of the task and not be put off or distracted by competing interests. And finally, stress tolerance. I know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, go ahead. Okay. The ability to thrive in stressful situations and to cope with uncertainty, change, and performance demand. Okay. So... That covers a lot of ground. So for this specific population, we're talking about adolescents. In general, we're talking kind of later high school. You do work with a few middle school kids as well as high school kids. But would you say you tend to have more like junior seniors? I would say I mostly work with juniors, seniors, and college students. I certainly have had middle school to early high school, but I don't know, lately it's a lot of later high school and then college students. Okay. So what are you finding? What are some of the most challenging issues facing these adolescents and young adults, you know, high school and college students today in terms of academics in this virtual world or hybrid world or virtual today and in-person tomorrow, this world that they're in, what are you finding is the most challenging? I think it's ever-changing. I want to start off by saying I think teachers and professors were truly doing the best they can in in being there and trying to teach and, and be present for the students. Organization is a big issue for our students, meaning really students at all levels, whether it's middle school through through college. Really, the issue was that teachers at all levels, what I have found in my experience in working with this age group is that the organization just wasn't there for, for many teachers, especially at the beginning of virtual learning. 
some teachers were pus- posting things on Google Classroom and Canvas and Blackboard and Moodle, and kids did not know where to find things, and it would change depending on the class and the semester, and so there wasn't consistency. And so I think and students had to learn to check online to see each day to see mm-hmm. whether assignments were uploaded and to see where they were supposed to upload their homework and to see it just became very stressful for students and created a lot of anxiety. And I think if you had a student where organization was not their strong point, they had to really learn to develop skills. And then you add in students that maybe had an attentional issue and they were virtual. Forget about it. I mean, so I think if students had their camera off, and missed a direction and felt self-conscious about asking for clarification, it became just a whole nother level of of challenge. So again, like the organizational, students' organizational skills are being challenged in different ways because physical organization wasn't the same because they weren't having to pack a backpack and keep their papers organized and notebooks organized, but they had to learn how to go online to access materials. And so that became sort of problematic. And so I would try to have them create checklists of their various classrooms and keep track of where their teacher said, was it Google Classroom? Was it Canvas? And did the teacher want things submitted directly on Google Classroom or Canvas? I think you get the idea. It was chaotic even for me to keep track of. Mm-hmm. So you had their, their um, working memory and organizational skills were being just challenged on a daily basis in this new platform. Yep. Absolutely. And for some, that was for the spring of 2020. And then some that continued fall of 2020 throughout the whole school year into 2021. And for others, you know, they went back, you know, initially after COVID, they went back in some kind of hybrid system. But I think the result of COVID was a silver lining was that we learned a lot of creativity in the way that we teach and the way that we can use technology to educate. So I think a lot of what happened in COVID, these skills are now required of students on an everyday basis. At least that's what I'm seeing with my high school students. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I think kids are more Talk about cognitive flexibility. I think that had to become a strength for students where it may have been a weakness before. They had to adapt and change to ever to to new demands and, and new things where they might not have necessarily wanted to. And I think that students were forced to adapt and change. And so I I do think that's going to help carry them on into future years in school. Kids who maybe would never wanted to take a class online. Right now we're forced to. And I think that's a great skill because in many colleges, online classes were already a thing. So I think that having that option and knowing that they could get through an online class is a good thing. Right. And if at any time things change or, you know, even now 
some people are saying, we're never going to, you know, I live in the Midwest, so we're never going to get another snow day again. COVID ruined all snow days forever. But I think the, the skills, the executive function skills, the technology skills, that flexibility is now a requirement of even grade schoolers, but, you know, grade school, high school, certainly college. And to know that at any given day, they might be using a different learning format because it is now possible and everyone has had that experience. I just do want to say something. I didn't say it at the beginning. We do have some questions and we're going to hold them to the end. But one SLP slash parent made the comment, chaotic for us parents trying to help our kiddos stay organized too. Absolutely. As a parent of three teenagers who, and living in suburban Maryland, my kids were virtual almost the entire year. My kids really didn't go back until almost the very end of the year. And it, it was a disaster. I mean, honestly. Yeah, a lot of different states were like that. We were fortunate here that our kids did go back, but my kids specifically, there were some school districts that didn't go back all year. So we'll see what happens. We're fingers crossed that most kids will be going back in person this year. Yes, I'm going to knock on wood on my desk. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us some specifics about how their executive functions are specifically challenged in virtual versus in person? I know one thing you mentioned was just the conversation that maybe a shy or uncertain student can have one-on-one with that teacher in the transition of classes, whereas they might not feel comfortable asking a question in an in-person class. They might be with someone who asks at the end of class. They might also not be comfortable asking in a Zoom-type meeting. So what happens to those kids? Those kids, I think, were really, yeah, left behind. I mean, I think especially I noticed I worked with a one middle schooler most of this year who she was in eighth grade, and that was really her experience is that she has anxiety and ADHD and attentive. And I think for her, and she was hybrid. So I think on her days when she was online, she would often not catch everything because she wasn't 100% focused. And then she would get anxious about wanting to get clarification. So she just wouldn't ask. And so I think when you're in person, you can ask your friend next to you, oh, have you started to read Catcher in the Rye yet? Or did you start your algebra homework last night? I think you miss those, students miss those little moments when they're in in person. Mm -hmm. And when you're virtual, those moments don't exist. And I think in the counties where I live and in next to us because of equity reasons, they don't require the camera to be on. And so that allows students, I think, to check out. And I know in my own home, I would walk by and my 16-year-old would be listening to Spotify or on Reddit or YouTube and not listening Mm -hmm. to his teacher. So I think it's really easy for kids to not be focused on what is going on in front of them when they are virtual and to be having another tab open and not doing the work that needs to be done. So when you're in person, yeah. I mean, you could still be, you know, doodling or whatever. Right. But it's, right. Y- your attention is going to be much more focused and you're going to be much more engaged on learning versus sitting at home in front of your computer and watching YouTube. But this does bring up the difference between learning today and learning 20 years ago. 
Most kids in high school did not have laptops. They did not have smartphones. If they did have phones, they were not initially allowed to bring them into class. In an in-person environment, they have a virtual environment because if they're on their computers, they're paying attention to the teacher and they're paying attention to their computer or possibly their phone. So I think the situation with COVID highlighted this, but I think it is a situation that in today's world spans across the school day. And it didn't just happen at COVID, but it was a lot worse during COVID. So I think what you're going to share with us today can help us help our students no matter where they are. I hope so. I mean, and I also had students who said they they felt awkward about asking a question in an online format, you know, even using the chat feature. And they just, they just felt weird. Even my high school, my my daughter's going to be a senior. She just felt awkward asking a question Mm -hmm. virtually in front of the whole class versus I think in person, she would have no problem asking a question in front of the whole class. I think it was something about the virtual format just felt sterile and awkward. I think students that I work with did start to feel a little more comfortable as the year progressed. But I think younger students, middle school age, they'd rather stay silent than look, you know, stupid in front of their peers. Even if it's not a stupid question, of course, no question is stupid. And we, we say that to our children all the time. But perception at that age group is so important. And I think mm-hmm. that they would rather stay silent than get any kind of clarification from their teachers. And so I think that's what virtual learning sort of brought out for them. It's just like, I'd rather just stay silent than than get any kind of clarification during class. And so I think that's really was the issue. Yeah. So then you layer, you layer, that's a problem for everyone. And then you layer the executive dysfunction on top of that. And definitely a challenge. So how can SLPs help? SLPs can help in a multitude of ways. I mean, first of all, we are in a great position because what other therapeutic role understands executive function better than us? We have training in the brain and understand Mm -hmm. how the brain works. And we work with school-aged children at all facets of development. And we understand the interplay of learning and development and ADHD and autism and language issues and traumatic brain injury and other learning challenges. Mm -hmm. We're also natural born counselors to our clients and their family members and often the leads on teams. So I think that makes us very valuable people to serve as really just the leads to provide executive function support. We can support executive function challenges in not only the school setting, but I believe in mental health settings and private practices as well. We're natural born communicators, Um, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) and can help educate not only our students on executive function, but other staff members and parents and I find that I spend a lot of my time really explaining executive function and the impact on academics, on brain development, and if my clients have attention deficit disorder, how executive function, that interplay with attention deficit disorder, and then the interplay on mental health as well. So that's our job. That's our role. It's just communicating and educating, and whether that's to our clients, parents, other clinicians, other therapists. I mean, that's really how we can help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Can you just touch on ADD and executive function? I'd love to. So it's often confusing to people and even other providers. And I'm going to just use ADHD as the term because there are three types. And ADHD is in the DSM and is a medical condition. And again, there are three subtypes. There's ADHD inattentive, and that's really who most of my clients are. There's ADHD hyperactive, and that's kind of what we think of as like the little boy. I I hate to be sexist, but the little boy with ants in his pants who is moving around and can't sit still and touching everything. And then there's combined combined type. And so many people with ADHD have executive function issues. Okay. But not all clients with executive function issues will have ADHD. So you can have executive function issues from a variety of other neurological issues, such as a right hemisphere stroke, traumatic brain injury, other learning impairments from drug addiction, schizophrenia, dementia. So from lots of other possibilities. But ADHD, generally, you will have executive function issues. Thank you for that clarification. So you work collaboratively at a private practice. You work with clinical social workers and psychologists. You have a neuropsychologist on on staff? No, no, not a neuro. Okay, okay. So in the private practice I work with, we have licensed clinical social workers who provide psychotherapy and licensed clinical. It's LCPCs, so licensed clinical professional counselors. And then we also have a psychiatrist on staff who comes in once a week. As part of our, we have what's called an IOP in our practice that provides services about 20 hours a week. Okay. And can you just back up? What does an IOP? It's an intensive outpatient program. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And yes, no problem. And so I work as part of that intensive outpatient program, providing executive function services for those clients. So those clients range in age from 18 to 27 generally. And most of those clients are young adults who have gone to college and taken a medical leave. Okay. The vast majority. Some have graduated college and are working and taking a leave of absence from work. But I would say the vast majority have gone to college and taken a medical leave. Okay. Okay. So you work on the team and your role on the team, which I think this is really exciting for our profession, that of all these people on your team, that you are the one who your role is to work with the students to understand their neuropsychological testing and their accommodations which is so important for them to learn advocacy, whether they're going back to school, whether they're going into a career, going into the job market, going into life, wherever they're going, they need to learn to advocate for themselves. And so you are the one who goes over the neuropsychological testing. And I think you've mentioned that sometimes they may have had several sets of neurological testing, neuropsychological testing done and don't quite understand it. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? So oftentimes I may get, for example, like a 15-year-old that comes in to see me and says, oh yeah, I think I've had neuropsych testing, but I don't know what it says. And so I'll say, Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. And so I will say to the client, can you ask your parents to get a copy of your testing 
and I want you to bring your testing in and we're going to, we're going to go over the results. And I might email mom and dad and say like, look, you know, your son or daughter really needs to understand what their testing says. And oftentimes it's Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about it that we haven't gone over the results with them. It comes from a place of love and wanting to protect right their child from really kind of knowing the full diagnosis and i will go over the full report and we will go over exactly what the results say we will go over recommendations line by line and we will process the report that's great and then set their goals based on the report as well as whatever is going on in their life at that moment where they need help with executive function Exactly. So for example, like for students who have dyslexia and ADHD and anxiety, and it might take them a lot longer to read text inside and outside of the classroom and needing extra time on assignments, they might say, well, yeah, I I know that, but they don't want to use the strategies and accommodations. So I'll kind of really break it down. Well, why don't you want to use those strategies? And they might say, well, Mm -hmm. I'm embarrassed about having to use the pen to highlight my work when I'm in the classroom. And so we'll talk about that. And I'll say, well, what would it be like if you just tried in one class? And then we'll kind of come back and talk about that. And really just kind of talking it through because, you know, I really want them to consider like, what's the cost of you not doing this? And are you ready to do things differently? Because right now with the clients, you know, failing two classes, we'll, we'll talk about, well, how is this going for you? And, you know, it becomes especially important as these students are transitioning towards college, because even though they may not have used accommodations in high school, it becomes really important because there's such a difference between high school and college. And so even though students may not think they need anything in high school, well, they haven't gone to college yet. And so it's better right, to get right. it's better to get things set up in college and just have it there in case you need it. Yeah. And some who have used the accommodations in high school feel like they've gotten to a point that they don't need them anymore and give them up before going to college, which it's so much harder to get them back once you have given them up. Yes. I always say like, just put them in place. And my hope is always that you don't need them, but then at least you have them. And it's so great to have them just in case, because you don't want to be at a crisis point and then have to be waiting months until you can get them reinstated. Right. And it's so hard to get that neuropsychological testing scheduled. So it can be months or closer to a, a year before you get from point A to Z, to having your new accommodations. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you see the transition between high school and college and why you see some students who seem to do pretty well in high school, if not very well, and they get to college and then they have issues with executive function and then they fall apart. So talk a little bit about that. So the typical client that I see in this practice has an attention deficit disorder, but managed it very well in high school. Maybe they took medication and maybe they didn't, but very smart. They can get by in high school. They show up. And again, this was kind of pre-COVID, but they show up, they can sit in class, they can absorb all the information. I mean, this was never me, but they could sit in class and literally listen to a lecture and get all the information. They maybe don't don't do much homework, but it doesn't seem to matter because they sit down and take a test 
and they get a hundred percent. So, so really highly intelligent, highly intelligent test. Well, so when it comes time to take a standardized test in ACT or an SAT, I mean, these kids do very well. We're talking 34, 35 on an ACT, 1500 something on an SAT. These kids do very well. So they're super structured when in high school, right? You're in, you're in class for seven hours a day. You come home, you have sports practice or extracurriculars. Everything's super structured. Mom and dad are reminding them, hey, you've got a paper due in English. Have you started yet? Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. reminders from parents about getting work done. They go off to college. A busy day in college might be three classes. Mom and dad aren't there to remind them. They're not playing sports anymore. They don't know how to study. They've never studied for anything in their life. There's a lot of reading in college, right? Lots and lots of reading, which they've never done before. They don't really know. No one's ever talked to them about the fact that outside reading in college is actually important. And Mm -hmm. some of that reading is you're going to be tested on. The professors are not going to spoon feed the way they may have in high school. Nope. And it's your responsibility to put the dates down from the syllabus somewhere. And, and you know, these kids in high school, they, they could remember the important dates of like when things occurred. But in college, it's very hard to keep track of, of the work. And they don't have any executive functioning strategies for remembering when the papers do and that they should start on a paper actually earlier than the night before. And so what happens, what I see a lot of is they fill these gaps of time with watching a lot of Netflix, smoking a lot of weed, even if they weren't smokers before, because it's so readily available. And a lot of the weed smoking comes from anxiety with this unstructured time and a Mm -hmm. lot of missed classes simply because they might miss one, not on purpose, but the one missed class turns into another missed class and they don't know how to repair. They don't know how to communicate to a professor that they've missed a class. Okay. And then it snowballs. Yep. Yep. So then you see them when they've decided it's gotten to a point that they need intervention. So with the IOP, that would be very bad <laughs> when yeah. it gets to that point. <laughs> so sometimes I see them before it gets to that point. But okay. many times, unfortunately, I see them when it gets to the point where they need to take a medical leave because they just have not gone to any classes. And they need to, to withdraw and take a medical leave. Unfortunately, that's a lot of what we see. Unfortunately, a, a lot of college students just have a rough time. I don't want to paint such a bleak picture. I feel like I'm painting a very bleak picture, but I guess I see it when it gets to that point. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, this is not happening to the vast majority of college students, but you are part of a very busy practice in the Washington, D.C. area. And I imagine you see most students, have they grown up in the D.C. area or are some of them still in college away from home in the D.C. area? Most of these kids attended public and private high schools in the D.C. area, and then they've gone away to college, and then they come back. We've had kids that have gone to MIT, Harvard, Tulane, Vanderbilt, University of Maryland, Williams. I mean, these are kids that go to good Mm -hmm. schools, and they have trouble. 
Okay. But, so they're smart um, kids. Right. Right. And then a lot of them end up going back. They after- go back. Some transfer because they've just decided like where they were ended up not being a good fit for a variety of mm-hmm. reasons. So they transfer to schools local in the DC area because they want the support of having their mental health team nearby. Others go back and they they finish. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about how you got into this this little niche within speech language pathology. And we've talked about some of the things that you do at your private practice. Can you talk a little bit more about the way the whole program works? So for an SLP who may be listening, who says, this sounds really interesting. This might be an area that I want to work in. So when someone comes to the 20 hour a week program, they are living at home, but they are coming to the the center for 20 hours a week. And what are they doing with the other professionals who are providing services? We run groups. So I run a goals group with another colleague. So we have them set short-term and long-term goals. So that meets once a week. They do an art therapy group. They do two process groups during the week. I run a life skills group, an executive function group as well that I run. And then they also do what's called dialectical behavioral therapy they do that group. There's a narrative group where there's a prompt and they, you know, kind of write something about the prompt. So it's a pretty intensive program. And then they're also getting individual therapy, family therapy, and then they see me for individual executive function support as well. Very interesting. So important. And so how long do people stay enrolled in the program? Typically? Three to six months. All right. So then you have, you have, you wear that hat, the IOP hat. And then how about for, let's say a high school junior who's been able to do pretty well until junior year when junior year became more intense and they come to your practice. Right. So then I might get a referral from a psychiatrist that is seeing somebody. And so they'll refer someone to me. And then I might see that student anywhere from like usually one time a week. And my high schoolers, they're busy. So it might be a 30 minute check in. And so I see them throughout the school year and then we take summers off and then we'll try to pick back up if needed at the start of the school year. And I really follow the student's lead. So I would say for most of my high school students, it's anywhere from a 30-minute session to an hour session, depending on what they have going on and how much work they have. Okay. Okay. And you are not helping them with the actual academic work. It's more with the organization, keeping track of dates, keeping track of a planner. Um, What are some of the other things you do? Right. So I'm trying to teach strategies. So we'll talk about task initiation strategies, talk about organization strategies. We will make sort of a plan of attack for the week, depending on what work they have. My goal is to really teach strategies and have them implement strategies. I am not actually doing work. They might sit and do some work in my office. So for example, if somebody has a paper, an English paper, for example, we might work on mapping out a plan of attack for the paper. So we're going to have them work on the outline on Monday 
or we're going to, we're going to work on getting resources on Monday and then do the outline Tuesday and then write. So kind of really plan it out. And then first paragraph or introductory paragraph on mm-hmm. Wednesday and then first and second paragraph on Thursday. So I'll really kind of help them plan out how to write the paper, but I'm not getting into that. Like I'm doing, helping them do the work yeah. because that doesn't yeah. do them any good. I will introduce note-taking strategies and strategies for studying because I feel like a lot of my clients don't know how to study or take notes. So we will talk about Mm -hmm. some of that if that's something that they are interested in or or want help with. I'm totally fine doing that. And I think that's important. But other than that, I really want to empower my clients to not have to see me. Mm -hmm. You're giving them the tools they need. Correct. I always say, look, I want to work myself out of a job. So (laughs) I don't want you to have to see me any more than you really need to. So like, what can we do to get you out of here? So for those clients, how long do you typically see them? I would say like a quarter or a semester. I mean, really like, and, and what I'll do is we'll start out like once a week and then I'll go down, then we'll go down to every other week and then once a month and really we'll we'll work it down so that the goal again is for them not to need to see me. Okay. And maybe not to have to do this with their parents. What advice do you have for parents? <laughs> My advice for parents and being the parent of three teenagers and two with ADHD is to just parent and to take yourself out of it and to really hire someone to do this type of of work because it is really challenging to parent and try to do the executive function piece yourself. I mean, this is what I do. And I had to hire someone to do this with my own 16 year old because so, okay. I mean, you can't, it, it creates too many bad dynamics in the household. Right. So I think it's really important to, if you notice that your son or daughter is really struggling with executive functioning issues is first of all, just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. I see you're having trouble with X or Y. Like I see you really procrastinating and having trouble initiating. Is this something you want to talk to someone about? And if they say yes, say great. I'm going to find somebody for you. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I think as a parent, like you know, find a couple of people you pre-talk to them and interview them and see who you think your child might gel with. Then you step out. Which brings up insurance coverage. What do you find with insurance coverage with executive function? It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I love your honesty. I hate that answer, but I like your honesty. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. My experience has been they really don't cover it. If the student has a diagnosis of autism or one of the autism disorder on the spectrum somewhere, insurance will cover it for some reason. Um, that has been my experience. So that's good. I really have been fighting with Asha, not fighting, but bombarding them with like, why won't you cover it for ADHD? They just won't. Because there's not a language component, they Mm -hmm. won't cover it. It makes no sense to me. If you put ADHD, I always put it as a secondary diagnosis. Okay. Some of my clients have, depending on their insurance, they will submit and some have gotten lucky and gotten coverage. It's really frustrating. I don't understand it, but it's virtually impossible to get coverage. But this is within the 
ASHA scope of practice, just for clarification. It is within the ASHA scope of practice. You can use 97129 and 97130. You can use those codes when providing services. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yes, you can definitely use those codes when providing services. They're executive function codes. It's just, I think what we always do here at our practice is just give out a blanket statement that says you are likely not going to get reimbursement and have everyone just kind of, you know, check that off before they see me and just make it very clear that like you're coming here for these services and you're likely to not get reimbursement. Right. Have you been a part of any advocacy efforts besides fighting with individual insurance companies? Is there anything that you see that we could do as SLPs to get coverage? Well, my dream is in my spare time, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I mean, cause I do live in DC and I, Asha's literally like 15 minutes away. I would love to be able to make a difference in this area because I think it's so important. I think so many people have been diagnosed with ADHD and have executive functioning issues and so many people with anxiety and mood dysregulation have executive Mm -hmm. functioning issues that it makes no sense to me that it's not covered by insurance. I literally want to bang my head against my desk every day (laughs) that my clients cannot get any reimbursement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's sad that only people who can afford it can get the services, but we do need to get paid too, right? So yeah. Okay. Well, let's go to some questions here. I'm going to scroll up on the chat. Who was the source for the 12 functions that you read? Yes, that is Peg Dawson and Richard Guare, who write Smart But Scattered. Their whole series are a great resource. Okay. And those are resources for parents as well as therapists? Parents as well as therapists. And they have a great executive function inventory that you can use. They have a smart but scattered for teens, a smart but scattered and stuck, smart but scattered. They've got a whole great series of books. So it's great. Yeah, I have a couple of those. Those are very, I like the way the books are laid out as well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Here's another question. Should these come naturally to a person? It seems like they need to be taught by parents, guardians, teachers throughout a child's life. And I would love to hear your answer, and then I want to add a little something. Absolutely. First of all, executive functions are not fully developed until around the age of 25. And research has shown that males, it's around 30, especially males that have an attention deficit disorder. And no, you actively need to teach these skills, especially the skills that you see aren't coming naturally to, I think later elementary, early middle school. I mean, I'm just thinking like some of these skills like cognitive flexibility, you can do things to sort of help shape that a little bit. Like if you always take a certain route driving, okay, you can change the route and see, and, mm-hmm. and, and that might drive one a kid crazy. Well, why are you, why are you going that way to the grocery store? We're going to change it up today. We're, we're going to go this way, or we're going to walk this direction to the park today instead of always go this way. And time management, I mean, you might really have to teach time management skills. But it does come more naturally to some than Absolutely. others. 
Like my husband has ADD and this time management sucks. It's always sucked. I, I mean, I've it's never gotten better in the over 20 years we've been together. That's his weakness. I mean, we all have st- executive function strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, some of it is kind of radically accepting like some of our weaknesses and yes. trying to use strategies as much as we can. And also, again, we all have strengths and weaknesses. But I think mm-hmm. there are some things we can do to kind of teach and incorporate things in our own household to kind of help develop things along. But no, some of these things can actively be taught. And I think some schools do add things into their curriculum to, to try to teach students some of these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is so important with the work that you are doing for the students to understand their strengths and weaknesses. And once like you can kind of see sometimes that light bulb go up when they realize, well, oh, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. These are just mine and I'm going to own them. And once they can take that ownership, they can really take off. Do you find that your clients' parents have executive function difficulties too? In the IOP... When, when I can get background on parents, what we typically mm-hmm. find is that most parents, there is a history of a parent having an attention issue or anxiety as well, That and there's some executive dysfunction as well. So yes, in my outpatient caseload, I don't always know the parent background, so I Okay. It's hard for me to know. Now, when parents disclose, I'm thinking of a couple out, a couple clients I have. Yes, I I know that the parents have disclosed that they also have ADD, and so there's often a genetic link with ADD, and so and executive function issues. So mm-hmm. I would say more often than not, yes. Do you ever end up doing some work with the parents? Yes. <laughs> We had a very interesting, it wasn't a podcast, it was a course that I moderated for Speech Therapy PD, and it was on executive function for adults, but mainly geared around parents and the family life. So that was an interesting one too. So here's one more question from our audience. And if you have anxiety, sensory, motor planning issues, would executive functions these executive functions would require so much more time than classes can give. So I think she's saying that the classes, you know, high school, college, when you have all these issues, put slow processing on top of that, it can be really hard. Yep. And then also you say this may be the new normal for students. It's kind of like what we were talking about, but we are expecting too much of their bodies and brains to sustain attention and stay engaged online and manage all the virtual assignments. That's a very, very good point. I agree. Something has to change and give. Mm -hmm. The one thing that really, that, that I hope really changes is the assignment due dates or the times that assignments are due. So when I was in high school, college, graduate school, way back when an assignment was due at the beginning of class and you brought it to the beginning of class. And if you didn't, it was late. Well, now I'll have kids nine o'clock at night, midnight um, for my college student. The assignments are due at midnight or nine. So they're, they're, it's like they're on 24-7 with their assignments. Multiply that by multiple classes and it can be a lot to keep track of. So I don't know. Do you think anything's going to be changing? 
my gut instinct is nothing is going to change in in the immediate future. I think for at least for high school, I kind of think it comes from the administration. Okay, let's have a policy that you know whatever the policy is, but you know maybe all classes, all assignments are due at the beginning of class, or they're all due by six o'clock. I don't know, but to expect assignments to be due into the late evening hours, I think it's hard on kids. I agree. And and one other quick thing I will mention is that sleep is a big issue in general. And this isn't necessarily executive. Well, it ties into executive function, but sleep is a big issue with kids that have ADHD. And since a lot of our ADHD kids have executive function, it's such a big issue. I've had four of my clients in the last two weeks get diagnosed with narcolepsy because sleep issues are really 30 to 40% of kids or people that have ADHD have a sleep issue. And it could be anything. It could be just some kind of sleep disturbance, but I've had, yeah, four with that high. Yeah. Significant. Yeah. So I think that's just another issue compounding what's going on. It's just the sleep of our, of so many of our kids is just so dysregulated and that's impacting. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. So informative And full disclosure, initially, we were going to have this podcast episode and then go into the strategies at the end. But after I saw your wonderful handout, I said, I think that we could do a whole nother either podcast or webinar on the strategies. So I do hope you will come back and talk about specific strategies, either in a webinar or on a podcast. We would welcome you. You were wonderful. Thank you. You all flatter me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. And just a reminder to everyone who would like to get live CEU credits, you need to log in to speechtherapypd.com and complete the entire course content. So that includes the quiz and the survey and just make sure all the boxes are checked. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.